and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Laura Gomez to the program today. Dr. Gomez is a professor at UCLA Law School and is the co-founder and served as the first co-director of UCLA School of Law's Critical Race Studies program. She has previously published the books, Misconceiving Mothers, Legislators, Prosecutors, and the Politics of Prenatal Drug Exposure, Mapping Race, Critical Approaches to Health Disparities Research, a book co-edited with Dr. Nancy Lopez, and Manifest Destinies, The Making of the Mexican-American Race. Today we'll be discussing her newest work, Inventing Latinos, A New Story of American Racism, which is published by the New Press. Dr. Gomez, in the social sciences, the concept of operationalizing definitions kind of lets us set the parameters of what's actually being investigated. I know this is a major point of the book, but what is the definition of Latino that you're using for the book? A really important question. The definition that I prefer, and I will say at the outset that, you know, these things are contested, right? And people make different choices. And so it's all part of inquiry and knowledge building in in my point of view. But the definition that I use is Latinos are people who live in the United States who are descended from countries in Latin America that were colonized by Spain. And the reason that I use that particular definition is that it allows me to talk about some dynamics that kind of flowed as far back as Spain's colonization of the Americas, including of the United States before Jamestown, right? And all the way down through you know, Central America, the Spanish Caribbean, and down to the tail of South America. It allows me to talk about sort of that moment in time, those 400 years of colonization, what happened when those countries became independent of Spain, and then what happened when there was very active U.S. imperialism in the Americas, and sort of linking all of that together and talking about how that shapes the racialization of Latinos today is what the book is about. And so, for example, I don't include Brazilians, right? Because Brazil was a Portuguese colony, even though there are many connections with Dominicans and Haiti, the Dominican Republic and Haiti, because they share the island of Hispaniola. But Haiti was colonized by the French and the Dominican Republic by Spain. So I don't include Haiti, although, you know, there are lots of reasons that someone might, right? So that's the definition that I use. And I want to say one more thing about this, which is that Latinos is a term that applies to these people who live in the United States, the people who are descended from from these countries, whether they immigrated from these countries or whether they've been here, as in the case of one side of my family, since before the Southwest was part of the United States. So I'm using descent in a very broad sense. But it doesn't have any currency outside of the United States. So, for example, it doesn't make sense to talk about Latinos in Mexico or Latinos in El Salvador because it's not a term that means something because everybody there, right, is Salvadoran or Mexican. One other footnote on this is that I omit from the definition as you can tell, 
those people who are Spanish immigrants or direct descendants of Spain who are in the United States, which is a very small proportion of people to begin with. But I just wanted to make that final point. And I know that at least people of Spanish descent in New Mexico are very adamant about saying they are Spanish and not Latino or Hispanic. That's a very, a question that's close to my heart because I grew up in Albuquerque. The last book that I wrote without a co-author was called Manifest Destinies, The Making of the Mexican-American Race. And it largely focused on that early population, what I call the first Mexican-Americans who became part of the United States only in 1848 when the U.S.-Mexican War ended. And what I argue is that those people claim that they're Spanish, but they're actually Mexican. And if you talk to them in certain contexts, like say around the kitchen table, and they're talking in Spanish, they'll say, yeah, somos mexicanos, we're Mexican. But then in other contexts, in the public sphere, they might say they're Spanish, right? So even though we have some ties to Spain, Nobody flew directly from Spain to New Mexico. They all came up through <laughs> through Mexico or over from Florida, right? They had to come from a coast. You mentioned early on in the book about micro, meso, and macro levels of racism. And how would you kind of define those and how they affect Latinos in the United States of America? Right. Well, it's actually something that's gotten easier to explain as the result of the brutal police killing of George Floyd and the summer of uprising and in attention to systemic racism that we have, as a nation, I think, been talking about appropriately, shining a spotlight on. So when we talk about systemic racism or institutional racism or structural racism, sort of putting those all in the same bundle, we're talking about the macro level, which is those dynamics of racial oppression that are embedded and not personal to a particular leader, whether president or police chief, they transcend individuals and they transcend time and they kind of go to the core of how institutions like law and policing operate, in a way we might think of them as hardened and not very susceptible to change. But if we go down a level to mezzo, we're talking about the dynamics of say, racism that the middle level, middle between individual and institutional, and then micro is the individual level, those kind of interactions that we might have, that you and I might have, you know, one-on-one -on -one where, or that I might have, I mean, you're not a very good example, Steve, because talking more about things that interactions that I'd have with a stranger, for example, you know, people will tell me, go back to your country because they assume that I'm, you know, Mexican or like born in Mexico, right? or other countries, that's a, a kind of a micro level, a one-on-one -on -one level. You know, I just gave you an example of how racism affects us at that micro level. Those are real hurts, right? The kinds of microaggressions, people assuming that I don't speak English, you know, in the workplace, assuming that I'm 
in a certain job classification, but not a professor, you know, those kinds of things. But this book is really much more about the meso level and especially the macro level. In terms of the meso level, I talk about institutions like education, schools and schooling and the segregation of Mexican-American children in schools in Texas and California and Arizona, probably from the 1910s to the 1960s or 70s, depending on the place, right? But this was very different from African-American school segregation, which was by law. So it was de jure. In the Southwest, the segregation of Mexican-American students was de facto or by practice. So that would be an example of the mezzo. And I talk about some of those dynamics in the book. But most of the book is really thinking about the structural level. And that requires a deeply historical kind of approach, really understanding how anti-Latino racism gets baked into the American psyche and how that persists over times. When we think about racial stereotypes, a racial stereotype becomes cognizable as a stereotype because we all understand it, right? We all understand that trope. And so that happens over generations. So that's in a a bit of a nutshell of what I'm getting at with those different levels of analysis. So could you tell us why the United States Census of 1980 was such a key moment in the definition of Latinos in the United States? So in 1970, the census results came out and the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund, which at the time was a fairly new civil rights organization modeled on the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, which where Thurgood Marshall worked before he was a Supreme Court justice and which filed the Brown versus Board of Education case. So MALDEF was modeled on that organization. And they basically said to the census in the form of a lawsuit, you are not counting Mexican-Americans adequately. You're undercounting this population. And that is resulting in reapportionment issues with congressional districts and state legislative districts, and therefore a lack of political representation for Mexican-Americans, inadequate funding for Mexican-American neighborhoods, and so forth. Well, the lawsuit was actually thrown out by the courts, but it was a case of Maldef losing the battle but winning the war because it sensitized census officials themselves and then the political leadership, both in the executive branch and in Congress, to do something about the way Latinos were undercounted or not counted. So prior to 1980, the census had some questions like, you know, do you speak Spanish at home or what language do you speak at home? And if people answered Spanish, then they might collect those numbers. But we can imagine how that would be an undercount if you had lived in in this country for a long time and you were no longer speaking Spanish at home. You were still Mexican-American, but you weren't going to show up. Or they used questions like, which they asked of everyone, you know, where were you born, right? And where were your parents born? But that too would be an undercount, right? So the decision was made 
for the first time in 1980 to have a nationwide count of Hispanics, Latinos, Hispanics. I use the two words interchangeably, although I prefer Latinos. Some people use the term Latinx, which is not one of my favorite words, but it's growing, kind of growing in popularity. Why are you not personally fond of that? I think part of it is like, I just am probably too old and cranky and I'm tired of always changing these names. You know, in my lifetime, I've gone from calling myself Chicana to Hispanic to Mexican American to Latina. And it's like, oh, exhausting. Like, do I have to do this again? And on the positive side, what's good about Latinx, I guess, what some of the young people who are using it really like is that it doesn't have embedded in it the Spanish language gender, right? So Latino on its own, if I was talking about a person, I would say Latino with an O on the end for men and Latina with an A on the end for women. But in Spanish, you can say Latinos and you're talking about both men and women, but it still has that kind of what some would call a sexist or a gender specific character of it. And I've noticed that the younger people, you know, people that I teach in law school and on the larger UCLA campus, they like that it's not gendered. And they also, because so many young people are really concerned about getting past the gender binary, whether they're trans people or whether they're people who are bisexual, they like the X, but I'm probably just an old fuddy-duddy. And so- that's probably why, why I don't like it. But back to the 1980 census, they make this decision. We're going to count Latinos, right, nationwide. That means we're going to capture Mexican-Americans who were in 1980 living in the Southwest predominantly. We're going to capture Puerto Ricans who in 1980 were living predominantly in the Northeast, in New York, in New Jersey, in Connecticut. We're going to capture Cuban-Americans who are living in South Florida, right? We're going to put these people into one category. But then they face the question of, well, are we going to just add a Hispanic Latino race category on the race question? Or are we going to have a separate question called the Hispanic ethnicity question? Are you Hispanic Latino? Yes or no. And we all fill that question out. We've all done it fairly recently and filling out the census this year. And that's what they went with. And that's what we still have today. And part of what I argue in the book is that that's inadequate to what we really need for today, these 40 years later. It seems with the 2020 census that the Trump administration has kind of engineered this thing to exclude Latinos as much as possible. That seems to be the desired result. I think that that is an accurate statement, and it happened in a few different ways. One of the ways that generated the most news was the Trump administration's decision announced in, I believe, April or May of 2019 to add a citizenship question. Is this person a citizen of the United States? To add that question on the 2020 census. That question had not been part of the U.S. census since 1950. So the Supreme Court, in an opinion written by Chief Justice John Roberts, put the brakes on that and basically said, no, you haven't given us good enough reason to make this change. And so the Trump administration 
backed away from it. They could have held up the census and made another shot at convincing the courts, but they decided not to. Now, why was the Trump administration proposing this? They said that they were proposing it because they wanted to better enforce the Voting Rights Act. And that actually fit with this whole bundle of allegations that Trump has made since he was elected, that there were fraudulent voters who voted in the election. Now, mind you, why this was an issue since he won, you know, it's not really obvious, but you might remember that he appointed this election integrity commission early on. Oh, Chris Kobach. Yeah, exactly. And it just went nowhere because, well, you know, there really is very little fraud, right? And there was no there there. But the courts kind of said, this is actually incredulous. That's not going to help anyone enforce the Voting Rights Act. And meanwhile, information was coming out, secret emails, you know, between Kobach and people at the Attorney General's office and Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Russell. It was Kobach and Stephen Miller, basically, who orchestrated this deliberately in these emails we can see. And in other paper trails, we can see that exactly what you said, Steve, is is the case. It, it was presented in order to decrease Latino participation in the Senate. Now, how would it have happened? Well, undocumented persons might definitely not want to be filling out a government form that said they were undocumented and that had their address, right? They would be chilled from that. But also people who are in what we call mixed legal status families, which is 17 million people nationwide. And what that means is you've got a family, a household, it could be a household of four people, a household of five people, parents and kids, and you have one person who's undocumented, let's say a father, and then you have a mother who's a citizen and children who are citizens. And so that whole family might be chilled from filling out the census. So let's see, I want to go back to something else you said, which is, oh, um, let me just mention this. I heard a radio story on our local NPR affiliate this morning. They interviewed a man in South LA who was afraid to fill out the census, even though he is a naturalized citizen. He and his wife are both naturalized citizens, but he was still afraid because of all of this rhetoric from the Trump administration and Trump himself, that somehow he could be deported, even though they're naturalized citizens, right? So it did have a chilling effect. It's still having a chilling effect, even though, you know, the question wasn't officially asked. So that was one of the that was one of the big census 2020 debates that affected Latinos. I think the other big one, so this kind of goes back to what I said before about that 1980 choice of saying, okay, instead of having Latinos as a racial category, we've got African-Americans, we've got white, we've got American Indian, we've got all these different Asian American categories. Instead of doing that, we're just going to have this separate Hispanic ethnicity question. Part of the idea being that, well, 
Latinos can be black, they can be white, they can be Indian, you know, even Asian, we know from certain South American countries where there was Chinese migration, you know, both recently and further back, right? Japanese Um, migration in Peru. Exactly. And Chinese migration to Mexico and to Cuba. And, you know, you can go to New York, right? And you can go get Cuban Chinese food, which is trippy. And you can go to Tijuana, Mexico on the border and you can get the best Chinese food. (laughs) still today. In any event, the reason for that is that when the Spanish colonized the Americas, they encountered a huge thriving indigenous community made up of these peoples who were some of whom were farmers, some of whom were hunter-gatherers, some of whom were migrating to fish, you know, just this huge number of indigenous peoples. And initially what they tried to do is enslave those indigenous peoples in terms of forced labor, right? Like to build Catholic churches and Spanish missions and Spanish forts and so forth. They found it difficult to do because number one, so many of the indigenous people were dying because of the diseases brought from Europe, but Also because the indigenous people were very resistant and fought off the Spanish. So then what Spain did very early in the Spanish colonization is they went to Africa and they bought slaves and they forced them into labor in Latin America. And we're talking about millions and millions of African slaves who were brought to the Americas early in the Spanish colonization of the region and also Well, it ended well before U.S. enslavement ended, but still you have that long history of racial mixture. So that was the rationale that the census used to say, oh, we should have the separate ethnicity question. But the reality has been that when people go to fill out the race question, so, I mean, literally, Steve, I have people tell me, oh, God, that horrible census question. God, the angst I feel with that, you know, I feel this too. So I answer that I'm Latina. Then I have the next question, what race are you? It says white. I think, no, I don't see myself as white. And I don't think others see me as white. It says black. Well, no, of course not. I would never have claimed that I'm I'm black, even though I undoubtedly have African ancestry because of the extent of, of African slavery in the Americas and in Mexico specifically. Am I American Indian? Well, again, I have a lot of indigenous ancestry, but I don't have a tribal connection, right? And that seems wrong to me to claim that. You know, I don't have Asian American ancestry that I know of. And so then I get to this little box down there that is other, right? Some other race. And lo and behold, since 1980 and through 2010, about 40% of Latinos do what I do. They choose other. So when we get the 2020 census results, we're going to have the odd situation of the second largest racial group in the United States being other. And to me, what that says is that we're not getting right what people's lived experience of racialization is in the United States. And so the Obama administration had worked on a huge effort to scientifically and rigorously test what would happen if we, instead of having the Hispanic ethnicity question, we had that as a race option. And they found that 
that 40% of Latinos, they chose Latino, they didn't choose other. Also, a lot of the people who were choosing white were also happy to choose other. About 6% of Latinos say that they are black on the census. That number didn't go down, right? So they recommended this and the Trump administration nixed that actually just about six weeks before the proposal to include the census question. So I think that these two examples show exactly what you said, Steve, at the outset, is that the Trump administration wanted to deter Latino enthusiasm for filling out the census. And that is because the more Latinos there are in, say, California, Texas, Florida, and New York, which are the four most populous states, but also four states with huge Latino populations, states where if congressional districts are taken away, then those districts can go to states, you know, whether they're Wyoming or Idaho or states that are more likely to be red states and that are whiter states. Could you talk about the positive and negative aspects of the concept of mestizaje? It's a Spanish word and it translates to mixture. We use it almost exclusively in the context of racial mixture. And the kind of valorization of mestizaje, of racial mixture, arose in the newly independent of Spain nations of Latin America, in particular in Mexico. In the 1920s, there was a intellectual who was the secretary of education Jose Vasconcelos, and he published this essay called La Raza Cosmica, The Cosmic Race. And in this essay, he postulated that the great strength of Mexico is that what he called the five races would come together and meld into one new Raza Cosmica that would be this mestizo race with the indigenous and the Black and Asian and European all mixed together. And when I was growing up in the 1970s, my parents had a consciousness as they were activists in the Chicano movement of the time, which was partly inspired by the Black civil rights movement. And they taught us to be proud of being mestizo, of having indigenous ancestry. And this was very radical at the time because many people tried to downplay that, right? So I had this kind of positive association growing up with the notion of mestizaje. And it wasn't until much later that I read about and learned about the ways in which this notion of mestizaje was actually very negative, very harmful for Afro-Latinos and for indigenous Latinos. And, and the reason is because if we have this idea that, oh, we're all gonna come together and be one race, it necessarily implies the elimination of that distinctive black Latino or that distinctive indigenous Latino, right? And sort of let's all assimilate and be one people the real harshness of mestizaje is the idea that indigenous persons and African origin persons would be basically told that they were part of the nation on an equal footing with Europeans, but at the same time, they would be at the bottom in terms of economics and in terms of 
educational attainment. And it was always the Spanish, the more phenotypically light-skinned, right? And it's very similar to the dynamics of colorism that your listeners probably know better in terms of thinking about African-Americans, right? So the same kinds of dynamics we see play out in the U.S. Latino population, where those who are indigenous are at the bottom and those who are phenotypically darker skinned and Afro-descended also, you know, get the shaft. And I think that that's beginning to change because I think we have a lot more discussion about it in within our group. And there's a lot more, I think, pride in terms of indigenous languages, a lot more thriving Afro-Latino culture in terms of musical contributions and such. So I think there is beginning to be some change, but it's still not where we need to be. And It's something that we as Latinos have to be committed to addressing, you know, all the time. You wrote specifically about how where a person can live in America, say if they're from the Dominican Republic, can influence how they view themselves as black, white, indio, mestizaje, things along those lines. Yeah, those regional differences are really fascinating. And sometimes the regional differences are more significant than the national origin differences in determining what somebody would say is their racial identity and what somebody, going back to that census question, what somebody would check on that list, right? So I like to use the term census white to sort of think about that racial categorization. You know, in the first category we see is white. And what does it mean when Mexican-Americans, Dominicans, Cuban-Americans, Puerto Ricans, when they check that white box, are they saying the same thing that sort of white Americans who are not Latino are saying? And the answer we've come to is no, they're not. And here's an example. So if you look at Dominicans in New York and New Jersey, they're much more likely to say that they're other race. But if you look at Dominicans in Florida, they're much more likely to say that they're census white. And similarly, if you were to come to Mexican-Americans in the Southwest, Mexican-Americans in Texas are more likely to say they're census white than Mexican-Americans in California, who are more likely to say that they're other. Now, what is that about? You know, is there actually some phenotypical difference or some ancestral difference in those groups of Dominicans and Mexican-Americans? No, there's not. But what there is, is a political reality, a lived reality in Texas and Florida that they are discriminated against in a more virulent way. And that is the vestiges of the Jim Crow South. And the Jim Crow South lives on in terms of how darker skinned African Americans are treated, but also how darker skinned Latinos are treated. And so if you could get away with saying you're white, then you're going to do that, even though we have all these surveys that say, if you say your sense is white, then we ask another question later down in the interview, do people think that you're white? And all of those people who say that their sense is white say, no, people don't think I'm white. You know, it's like this kind of defensive whiteness. It's like this shield against greater discrimination, which is stronger in Texas and Florida compared to, you know, sort of the more urbanized California and more urbanized Northeast. 
And you write about how this insecurity using this identity as a shield has helped perpetuate the racism of America against African-Americans and blacks. Yes, exactly. And I think that that's really an important part of the conversation is that especially in the 20th century, the mid 20th century, you see places where there are African-Americans and there are Latinos and you see African-Americans being pushed out and you see Latinos being relatively more accepted. And so Latinos kind of become this buffer between whites and blacks. This is very well illustrated by a phenomenon in Chicago between 1960 and 1980. Even before 1960, there's a very old standing Mexican-American population. And going back to the actually early 20th century, in fact, what one of my grandfathers went to Chicago in the late 20s to work, ended up going back to Texas. There were jobs there, right? So what happened in 1960 is in response to Brown versus Board of Education and the very slow enforcement of school desegregation, well, white flight happened. So you had a very large proportion of the white population that leaves the Chicago city limits for the suburbs, for suburbs that they work very hard to keep white. And you have a population influx into Chicago of Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans. And they end up living, literally living between black neighborhoods to one side and white neighborhoods, you know, to the other side. They're in the middle, right? And so that's kind of a physical illustration of what happens, but there's also a more metaphorical notion of the buffer. But what happens if you're a buffer group? Well, if you're a buffer group, you're going to be very intent on distinguishing yourself from the lower status group, which is African-Americans, right? And sort of Latinos in that way in many cities and states became complicit in enforcing the black-white color line, even though they were kind of like the other whites. They weren't really white, right? But they could claim distinction from blacks by saying, you know, we're white in quotes, right? And so those dynamics are part of why African-Americans remain at the bottom of the American racial hierarchy. And Latinos have, relative to Blacks, have had a better lot on the racial hierarchy. Puerto Ricans, after Hurricane Maria, they've come to Florida around the Orlando area. What has the dynamic been like in the state since the Cubans have had kind of a handle on Latino identity in the state now that the Puerto Ricans are there in large numbers? Yeah, it's really fascinating. And just to be clear, the sort of central Florida, Orlando area, Puerto Rican population is not new. It has been strong. It's just gotten this additional influx of about 300,000 people since Hurricane Maria, right? But what's interesting to me about the demographics of Florida are that Cuban Americans are no longer the majority of Latinos, right? So there's so many other Latino groups, Colombians and Dominicans and Venezuelans, and the largest being Puerto Ricans. And if you add up all those other Latino groups, they are numerically larger than Cuban Americans. So that's one point. But the other point is that the Cuban Americans who came in the 1960s fleeing Castro 
Well, many of them have died and others of them are, you know, very elderly. And the question we have to ask is, how are their children and grandchildren voting? And when you look at that data, you find that they are not swinging Republican in the same degree. And so, for example, the first Democratic Cuban-American was elected to Congress from South Florida in 2018. So I think that it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with the Latino vote in Florida for 2020. I know the Biden campaign has been putting a lot of money into Florida, advertising in Spanish, advertising in social media, in English, but targeting Latinos. They've been doing a lot of detailed polling in the state. So I think we might see a real shift there than what we've seen in the past. It's, it's been happening for some time, but I think we're going to really have it confirmed in days of the election. It's ironic that President Trump did not help out Puerto Rico much after Hurricane Maria. And now that people relocating to Florida could actually vote for president, and that might turn the tide against him. And he probably has no idea that they could have done that, right? Because he was, remember at the very beginning of the hurricane, he was like, are they American? What, what is the deal with Puerto Rico? So, yeah, I don't think he realized that that makes the difference in Florida. And it could, because Florida is always very close, right? Dr. Laura Gomez is the author of Inventing Latinos, A New Story of American Racism which is published by The New Press. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.